Disney's Episode 2, Sleeping Beauty. Welcome to Disney, a podcast for Disney fans. I am your host, Christopher, and if you're coming back from having heard my first episode on Snow White, then welcome back. And if you're a brand new listener, then welcome. And uh, I am unreasonably excited about this episode because Sleeping Beauty is my favorite animated movie of all time, hands down, and Maleficent is my favorite villain of all time. And that includes Disney villains, it includes non-Disney villains, just flat out, hands down, my favorite villain of all time. I love this character. I'll get into the reasons why in this episode. I will also cover why I love the movie in general. Uh, But, you know, I'm choosing to talk about it right after talking about Snow White because of all of the similarities between them. I mean, I think that in many, many ways, Sleeping Beauty is a superior movie. Uh, but if you look at it on the absolute surface, like just the bare surface, like if you look at the plot at an absolutely superficial elementary level, Snow White and Sleeping Beauty are the exact same movie. (laughs) Because I mean, like the basic plot is that a young teenage girl hides from an evil witch in a cottage in the woods until the evil witch is finally able to confront her and put her under a sleeping curse, which can only be and ultimately will be broken by true love's kiss. Like the two movies are basically, like I said, just that superficial plot. It's the same story. So they really do have a lot of similarities. Uh, There are a lot of similarities between Aurora and Snow White. There are a lot of similarities between Maleficent and the Evil Queen. I even remember a friend of mine years and years ago, like this was around the time that the first Angelina Jolie Maleficent movie came out. And a friend of mine was confusing Maleficent with the evil queen, you know, thinking that Maleficent's target was Snow White. And I was like, no, her target is Princess Aurora. Snow White is from Snow White. Like this is Sleeping Beauty, you know, but uh, he was getting the two confused. And that is completely reasonable. I think if you're not like the Disney fairy tale hardcore nut that you know some people are not naming anybody (laughs) uh then it's an easy mistake to make uh but i love maleficent as a character and so to be honest i'm probably going to be doing a lot of defending of her (laughs) in this episode which might come as a surprise because she is the self-proclaimed mistress of all evil. You know, I mean, she's supposed to be like evil incarnate. How do you defend that? But (laughs) I just love the character that much. And I, uh, you know, I just, I really think that the movie does have it out for her in a lot of ways. And I'll just, I'll talk about that when I get to discussing the movie. But, uh, It's also not just because of how much I love Maleficent. It's also because of how much I don't like the three good fairies, especially Meriwether. But again, I will get into that. So just giving you a little teaser here, a little preview of kind of what you can expect. But before we get into talking about Sleeping Beauty, I have some exciting Disney news for you. (laughs) 
So first up is arguably the most exciting announcement that Disney has kind of uh, released recently. And this article comes from People. The headline is Frozen 3 and Toy Story 5 sequels in the works, Disney reveals. Disney CEO Bob Iger said the push for the upcoming sequels, quote, is a great example of how we're leaning into our unrivaled brands and franchises. And it goes on to further quote him. It says, Today, I'm so pleased to announce that we have sequels in the works from our animation studios to some of our most popular franchises, Toy Story, Frozen, and Zootopia, said Iger, per deadline. We'll have more to share about these productions soon, but this is a great example of how we're leaning into our unrivaled brands and franchises, as I just said. So I'm honestly like really, really excited about this, especially the Frozen 3 and Toy Story 5 announcements like Zootopia. The first Zootopia movie is pretty good. It's not like a I don't like love it, you know, like I'm not obsessed with it, uh, but it's pretty good. But the Frozen franchise and the Toy Story franchise are both franchises that I really, really love. And I feel like I'm especially excited about Toy Story 5 just because I really was not happy with the way the Toy Story 4 ended. I, to be honest, I hated it. Like, I didn't hate the movie overall. I just hated the way that it ended. I was not satisfied with that ending. So I remember thinking after leaving the movie theater, after seeing Toy Story 4, like, I really hope that wasn't the last one because I don't like that ending. Like, <laughs> I really hope we're getting a fifth one. So this announcement that we are... I'm very pleased with. As for Frozen 3, I love, 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 love the Frozen movies. I will never let it go. <laughs> I just love them. Uh, so I'm always here for more Frozen, but at the same time, I don't want it to end up becoming like the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise because at some point you do need to have an end game in sight, you know, like you need to have an ending in mind because otherwise the movies kind of lose their power after a while because it's like, am I watching the end or not? I don't know. You know, like I feel like you need to at some point say, this is the grand finale. This is the ending. And the movie can better be appreciated as an ending in that way. And that is like one thing that I think uh, Marvel did really well with Infinity War and Endgame. Because even though we knew that we were still going to be getting more Marvel after that, that a lot of these characters would be coming back. This still felt like the ending of a saga. It still felt like a big finale. You know, it was the ending of a, of a story of a uh, mythos that we had gotten up to that point. A lot of characters had exits in those movies. And so it really did feel like an ending. And that's something that I think we need to learn from. So I'm really hoping that it's not just like going on indefinitely. You know, at some point, they do need to announce that, you know, okay, yeah, Frozen is getting another sequel, but this is the final one, you know. And I feel similarly about Toy Story, but I feel even more so that way about Frozen, just because I think that Frozen has more of, like, a mythology to offer. Like, there's a, there's, there's just more mythology to it, you know. So, whereas Toy Story is kind of just more, like, it's just more fun, you know. It's just something to kind of... Uh, sit back and enjoy while munching on a bucket of popcorn, you know? So uh, I think that even more so than Toy Story, Frozen needs an endgame. Anyway, uh, moving on to the second piece of news that I have for you here. Uh, this is regarding two Disney movies that were expected out later this year, The Marvels and uh, The Haunted Mansion. 
And they are both still coming out this year, but they've kind of been switched as far as their release schedule is concerned. Uh, the Marvels has been pushed back to November, whereas the Haunted Mansion has been pushed up to July. And so this comes from Daily Mail. The headline says, The Marvels will open in November while Haunted Mansion is now being released in July as Disney shuffles its upcoming schedule. So, you know, it's a little weird, I think, for a Haunted Mansion. I mean, I don't... Okay, let me rephrase that because I don't personally think it's weird. But I can see from a lot of other people's perspectives why it might be weird to release something like the Haunted Mansion during the summer because it kind of calls back to one of the reasons why the first Hocus Pocus movie arguably didn't do very well initially because it was a Halloween-themed movie that was released in the summer. You know, so it might be a little bit of an odd choice, but at the same time, I don't think so just because one thing that Hocus Pocus had going against it was not only that it was out in the summer, but also that it was a completely new frontier, right? Like nobody knew what Hocus Pocus was. It was a completely new franchise, whereas Haunted Mansion already has an established following, right? There's already a movie. It's a Disney Park ride. You know, it's it's already got, it's already established. So I don't think that it's going to harm it by putting it out in the summer rather than uh, November. And I don't know if it's going to be a theatrical release or if it's going just to Disney Plus. I'm not sure. Uh, but either way, you know, to some people it might seem like an odd choice. But And I'm not really sure why these two movies were switched uh, as far as release scheduling is concerned. But that's what happened. So I just wanted to, in case you hadn't heard, I just wanted to share that, uh, you know, if you were looking forward to the Haunted Mansion, which, you know, I know that uh, I, I mentioned this podcast on the show before, I think in my introductory episode, Mouse House Weekly, it's another Disney podcast that I definitely recommend checking out. Uh, I think that it was specifically Jeremiah and Rachel that I remember saying that they were really excited about the Haunted Mansion. So for people like them, you know, the movie coming out sooner than expected is going to be some good news. So, but if you were really, really excited about the Marvels, then, you know, that's some bad news. But uh, anyway, moving on to the third piece of news here, which is also very exciting, is that as you probably already are aware, uh, The Little Mermaid, the live action adaptation that's coming out later this year, got a teaser during the Superb Owl. And it looks like it's really going to be fun. Like, you can't always tell how something is going to be from, like, a 30-second teaser. But it just looks like it's going to be very colorful and vibrant and fun. And Ursula is my third favorite Disney villain. And I also love, love, love Melissa McCarthy. I just adore her. I feel like she's great in everything that she's in, even if the movie is terrible. And the teaser did give a very, very brief glimpse of Melissa McCarthy as Ursula, but you didn't get to see much of her. You kind of just saw like the top half of her face and the bottom half was kind of covered by one of her uh, her tentacles. So I'm just really, really excited. I can't wait to see it and uh, can't wait to see, you know, Melissa McCarthy as Ursula. All right, so let's start talking about Sleeping Beauty, because like I said, I'm so excited about this. Uh, 
So this movie was originally released on January 29th, 1959. And it was written by uh, several people here. I apologize in advance if I mispronounce any of these names and you are familiar with these names, so you know that I am. But uh, it was written by Erdman Penner, Joe Rinaldi, Winston Hibbler, Bill Peet, Ted Sears, Ralph Wright, Milt Banta. And of course, it is based on Sleeping Beauty, the fairy tale by Charles Perrault. Directed by Clyde Geronimi, Wolfgang Reitherman. Eric Larson, and Les Clark. And unlike Snow White, all of our cast here was actually credited in the credits of the movie, and we have Mary Costa as Princess Aurora, Eleanor Audley as Maleficent, Bill Shirley as Prince Philip, Verna Felton as Flora, Barbara Jo Allen as Fauna, Barbara Luddy as Meriwether, Taylor Holmes as King Stephen, and Bill Thompson as King Hubert. And the music in this movie is really interesting because it is mostly Tchaikovsky's Sleeping Beauty Ballet. And there's a little bit of, you know, a little bit added here and there, but it's mostly Tchaikovsky's Ballet. And it was adapted and arranged by George Bruns, I think is how you pronounce his last name. He did a lot of music work, like back in like the 1950s and 60s, and I think maybe a little bit of the 70s as well. Uh, he was kind of like the Alan Menken of Disney then. Like, he did a lot of the musical work. Uh, so, original songs written by George Bruns, Tom Adair, Winston Hibbler, Ted Sears, Erdman Penner, Sammy Fain, and Jack Lawrence. So, brief synopsis here, just as a refresher. When the evil fairy Maleficent curses young Princess Aurora to die on her 16th birthday after pricking her finger on the spindle of a spinning wheel, three good fairies soften the curse so that instead of dying, the princess will fall into a deep sleep that can only be broken by true love's kiss. The three good fairies then raise Aurora in seclusion to keep her safe from Maleficent's wrath, while the noble Prince Philip, after a chance encounter with Aurora, is met with obstacle after obstacle in his effort to stop Maleficent. Some interesting facts, some trivia about the film. Sleeping Beauty was the last Disney animated film to be based on a fairy tale for nearly 30 years until The Little Mermaid was released in 1989. The film was the first Disney animated feature to be shot in Super Technorama 70, a widescreen format that gave the film a more cinematic feel. And I definitely think that that is felt like you definitely feel that. And this is from the Disney wiki. The style for Sleeping Beauty was based on the art of Ivan Earl, who claimed to have a pre-Renaissance style with long vertical lines and Gothic elegance. And he actually painted most of the backgrounds. And I mean, knowing that they were hand painted, they are so beautiful. They are breathtakingly beautiful. And those backgrounds, those painted backgrounds are honestly a big part of the reason why I love this movie so much. So yeah, I have to tip my hat to him. And this is also from the Disney wiki. Uh, Maleficent was actually originally conceived as more of like a hag-like witch, which is really interesting because, I mean, I think that a big part of the reason why this movie is so iconic is her appearance. I mean, Maleficent is one of the most identifiable, like easily identifiable Disney villains. If you see like a shadow silhouette of her, you know exactly who that is. And so like just imagining her as sort of like this hunched over, like 
character sort of like the hag from Snow White after the Evil Queen transforms, I don't think that this movie would have had the staying power. I really don't. Uh, so they might have recognized that because they did end up deciding on a more elegant and regal appearance. And uh, Mark Davis, who was a prominent artist and animator for Walt Disney Studios, uh, got the idea for her appearance actually from looking through a book of medieval art. And that was where he got the idea for her attire. Uh, he felt inspired by this image that he found in there of a religious figure with long robes, which kind of tapered off at the end into things that looked like flames. And the sides of her headdress are meant to be evocative of bat wings, which I can definitely see. And the horns are meant to look demonic. And also, of course, they uh, kind of foreshadow her eventual transformation into a dragon. So... Uh, yeah, it's. I can't imagine Sleeping Beauty being the same movie if Maleficent had a completely different appearance. I mean, it just wouldn't be. It absolutely wouldn't be. The movie was also nominated for a Golden Globe Award for Best Original Song for Once Upon a Dream, but it was just a nomination, and it actually did not win any major awards, which uh, shocks me. And it was also met with mixed reviews when it first came out. Uh, there were critics who praised its lush animation and musical score, but there were also critics who really had a lot to say about its lack of humor and slow pace. Those were kind of the reasons that they gave. I don't really agree with either one of those reasons because I think that there's plenty of humor in this movie, and I don't find it slow-paced at all, but that's just me. That's my opinion. But, you know, despite the mixed reviews that initially came it has since become a classic and is, of course, considered a milestone in the history of animation. So, you know, at least it's definitely had staying power. But without further ado, let's actually get into talking about this movie. It opens with an overture that starts with a choral version of Once Upon a Dream over the opening credits. And similar to Snow White, we get a shot of a storybook being opened. This time, however, we don't get just text. We also get a voiceover. Uh, and this is provided by Marvin Miller. He did the voice for the narrator. Uh, and it says, In a faraway land, long ago, lived a king and his fair queen. Many years had they longed for a child, and finally their wish was granted. A daughter was born, and they called her Aurora. Yes, they named her after the dawn, for she filled their lives with sunshine. Then a great holiday was proclaimed throughout the kingdom so that all of high or low estate might pay homage to the infant princess, and our story begins on that most joyful day. So the narrator actually continues throughout most of the movie. It's not just this one time, you know, giving us this exposition that we need in order to follow the rest of the movie. He actually like pops in and out throughout the movie. Uh, but notice how as I was sharing what the narrator says here, I put emphasis on the word all. And I'm going to reread that, in fact. Then... A great holiday was proclaimed throughout the kingdom so that all of high or low estate might pay homage to the infant princess. I think that that word all is really important because, <laughs> I mean, they didn't invite Maleficent. So I'll touch more on this in a bit. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think that that word is just really important. In fact, one thing that I really noticed on this rewatch is just how fitting Maleficent's punishment actually is. And I didn't notice that until this time watching it, because 
I had always thought to myself, like, if you're upset with the kingdom, now I get she's evil. You know, she she's not thinking logically to an extent. Like, I get that that's kind of what we're supposed to think. But if you are angry with the king and queen for not inviting you to the ceremony, how is that the child's fault? Like, you're basically punishing the child for what her parents did. You know... Like I said, watching it this time, I kind of was better able to understand her motivations because you have this opening scene, this scene near the beginning of the movie of all of the people marching to the castle for the ceremony. They're singing Hail to the Princess Aurora, and you have lyrics like health to the princess, wealth to the princess, everyone in the kingdom. I mean, the narrator just told us that everyone in the kingdom has been invited to this ceremony except Maleficent. So it makes sense that she would want to sabotage it by destroying the whole reason that they're celebrating, right? The whole ceremony is about the birth of Aurora and blessing her with gifts that will allow her to prosper for her entire long life. And, you know, Maleficent is like, you know what? If I'm not invited to this ceremony, then I'm going to go in and I'm going to destroy the whole thing you're celebrating. I'm just going to completely ruin this party. Of course, you know, back in my Snow White episode, I talked about the series of books, the Villains series of books by Serena Valentino. The fourth book in that series is Mistress of All Evil. I'm sure you can guess what villain (laughs) that's about. And we get a different reason in that book. Like, I'm not going to spoil it, but I'll just say that, like, basically showing up to the party and or the ceremony, whatever you want to call it, the christening, and cursing Aurora under the guise of being offended that you weren't invited. Like, that's really all it was, was just a guise. There was a whole other reason why she cursed Aurora, according to that book. Like I said, the narrator continues on throughout the movie, and I'm not going to recite every single thing that he says, but I do want to call attention to this. Thus, on this great and joyous day, did all the kingdom celebrate the long-awaited royal birth. Even the narrator is ostracizing Maleficent. (laughs) Even the narrator has it out for her. Like, he is saying that the entire kingdom has been invited. All have been invited. But Maleficent has not been. So the entire kingdom was not invited. You know, so like even the narrator is ostracizing her, which I just find hilarious. And, you know, in this opening scene as well, we see King Hubert and Prince Philip. You know, Philip is still a young boy. And I do find it hilarious how Philip looks at the baby and looks disgusted because, yeah, you would. Like she's a baby and you are. I don't know, he looks maybe four or five years old, maybe a little bit older than that, but not much. And he's looking at this baby in disgust because he knows, I mean, I would imagine that they've told him, right, that he's promised to her, that she's promised to him that they're going to get married someday. So he's most likely thinking to himself, I'm going to have to marry a baby? Uh, Yeah, but anyway, Stefan, who is, of course, Aurora's father, the king, and then Hubert, who is Philip's father, he's uh, presumably the king of a neighboring kingdom. Uh, They are going to announce that in order for their kingdoms to unite, Philip and Aurora are going to get married. Because like I said, they've basically been betrothed to each other. They've been promised to each other. And this is just 
absolute insanity to me. This was a different time period, and people sometimes married for different reasons, but, you know, still. Like, you know, marriages were oftentimes, like, uh, arrangements of convenience or political purposes, as is the case here. Like, I get that, but still, that is insanity to me. I mean, it's really, really unnerving to me, this idea of promising kids, promising children to each other, babies. Like, that's really, really unnerving. And uh, again, different time period, I know that, but just, it's insanity. I also always used to wonder how we knew Maleficent was a fairy, because that's never explicitly stated in the movie, I don't think. And she also looks so different from the three good fairies, and she doesn't have wings. So I always wondered, how do we know that Maleficent is a fairy? And I kind of just assumed that it was one of those things that Disney has just established as canon even though it's not stated in the movie. So, for example, the evil queen's name is Grimhilda, right? But that's never stated anywhere in the movie. However, Maleficent has to curse Aurora to die on her 16th birthday rather than just kill her right away because I think that she has to work within the laws and limitations of fairy magic. So the fairies, or at least two of them, Flora and Fauna have already given Aurora their gifts. They have gifted Aurora with beauty and song, and Maleficent can't undo those gifts. You know, she even says, the princess will indeed grow in grace and beauty. And she can't undo that any more than the three good fairies can wholly undo the curse, right? They can't completely undo Maleficent's curse. They have basically ensured that she will grow up with beauty and song, so the soonest that Maleficent can do anything is when she is no longer, quote, growing up, right? It's possible that this kingdom considers 16 to be an adult, and that's why Maleficent is not doing anything until she turns 16. Because in some ways, you can kind of see that as a possible plot hole. Why not just kill her? You're an extremely powerful witch slash fairy. You can very likely just kill the baby, right? Why do you have to, especially since... She's not depicted as being very patient. She even says near the end of the movie, for the first time in 16 years, I shall sleep well tonight, right? So she's not very patient. So why would she set herself up for that <laughs> by it not happening for 16 years? I think it's because, like I said, the fairies have already gifted her to grow up with these things. So the soonest that Maleficent can do anything is when Aurora is no longer growing up. And the fact that she seemingly has to work within the confines of fairy magic and the three good fairies can't just completely undo Maleficent's curse all but tells us, or at least me, <laughs> that Maleficent is in fact definitely a fairy. But I love her entrance scene so much. When she arrives at the christening, it's one of the most iconic scenes in any animated movie of all time, at least to me. I love it. Uh, this is my favorite scene of the movie. I love Maleficent's dialogue here. I don't think that I've said this yet, but Eleanor Audley was perfect. Absolutely perfect. I don't think that anybody else could have done this character justice the way that she did. She is just phenomenal, her voice acting in this movie. She sounds like she's acting out a like a theatrical character you know like she's 
she's on stage and she's like really projecting her voice and really giving this character life. It just, it feels very, very theatrical. And I just love it. She is phenomenal. She says, well, quite a glittering assemblage, King Stefan. Royalty, nobility, the gentry, and, and then she laughs. How quaint. Even the rabble. And she's saying that in reference to the three good fairies, noticing that they're there. I really felt quite distressed at not receiving an invitation. And I love the look on her face <laughs> when Meriwether says, you weren't wanted. She feigns shock. Like, her eyes go wide. You know, she acts like she's completely shocked and surprised. You know, and then she says, not what? Oh, dear. What an awkward situation. I had hoped it was merely due to some oversight. Well, in that event, I'd best be on my way. And then we get Queen Leah. And that's another situation like Grimhilda where I don't know how we know that that's her name because it's never stated anywhere in the movie. <laughs> but apparently her name is Leah. And she says, and you're not offended, Your Excellency? I'm sorry, but how incredibly stupid. Basically what she's saying is... So you don't mind that you're the only person in this entire kingdom that we didn't invite to this incredibly important event that it could be an insult not to invite someone to? Like, why not invite her to stay? Even if she already was this monstrous and feared villain, and I don't get the vibe that she was, wouldn't it be better to have her there than to risk her wrath? That just seems incredibly stupid to me. Like, Oh, yeah, sorry you weren't invited. You're still not invited, though. Are you sure you're not upset? Are you sure you're not offended? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> and then Maleficent, you know, again, Eleanor Audley's work here, the way that she portrays, like, sarcasm and pretending to be offended, even though she is offended... It's just, there's so many layers to it. I love it. Uh, she says, why no, your majesty. And to show I bear no ill will, I too shall bestow a gift on the child. And once again, I feel like this is how we know that she is a fairy. Because I think that this is her way of rubbing it in. That it's customary for fairies to do that, right? Like the three good fairies each gifted Aurora with something. So it's customary. And so she's kind of rubbing that in. Right? Like, you invited the rabble, you invited these other fairies here, but you didn't invite me. So then here's where we get possibly my favorite dialogue from the movie. I don't know. There are so many lines up for that title in this movie, it's kind of hard to say, but this is definitely way, way up there. I think in large part just because of how iconic it is. Like, when you think Maleficent, you kind of think these lines. Listen well, all of you. And I love the sound that her staff makes when it hits the floor. I don't know why I find that sound so soothing. <laughs> it's just like ear candy. I don't know why, but I do. And uh, she then goes on to say, The princess shall indeed grow in grace and beauty, beloved by all who know her. But, and again, I'm doing my best. I'm failing miserably, but I'm doing my best to kind of try to recite it in the same tone or a very similar tone as how Eleanor Audley delivers it because it's just so perfect. You can't not do that, right? You can't recite this part, recite these lines 
without also it's almost like if you're trying to recite the lyrics to a song right you kind of have to sing it it's hard to recite song lyrics as if they're a poem you know like they're meant to be sung and that's kind of how i feel about this like there's just so much character and personality in her voice and a very particular way in how she delivers it it's almost like sing-songy and you kind of have to recite it that way or else there's no point in reciting it. So she says, But before the sun sets on her 16th birthday, she shall prick her finger on the spindle of a spinning wheel and die. <laughs> and I love the way she says die because it's almost like she's saying this filthy word. Like she's... <laughs> The emphasis that she puts on it, it's like she's cursing. I mean, she is literally cursing. She's cursing a child. But I mean, it sounds like she's saying like this terrible, socially inappropriate word, the way she says it. I love it. And just like in Snow White, there's a lot of rhyming in this movie. But to me, it makes a little more sense in this movie than it does in Snow White. Because in Snow White, sometimes it happens just in everyday speech in everyday vernacular. And it's like, I get that this is a fairy tale, but people don't talk like that. People never have talked like that. People don't talk in rhymes. <laughs> but here, like, for example, when Meriwether uses her gift to soften Maleficent's curse, she says, Sweet princess, if through this wicked witch's trick a spindle should your finger prick, a ray of hope there still may be in this, the gift I give to thee. Not in death, but just in sleep the fateful prophecy you'll keep. And from this slumber you shall wake when true love's kiss the spell shall break. And see, this makes a little bit more sense to me because she's essentially casting a spell and spells often do rhyme. So it does make sense to me in this context. It's not just everyday speech, but because of her curse, because of Maleficent's curse, King Stefan demands that all of the spinning wheels in the kingdom be burned. And I was just thinking, I really hope he's paying the seamstresses and the tailors because that is their commodity. They kind of need spinning wheels to work, I would think. So <laughs> I hope that you're accommodating them, but you're a king, so you're probably not. Uh, but Fauna, you know, just going back to the three good fairies, because like I think I said already, I'm really not a big fan of them, especially not Meriwether. I can't stand Meriwether. She is so aggravating to me and annoying and just gets under my skin and I can't stand her. But my favorite of the three is definitely Fauna. And she's the one in case you're kind of like not following along as to, well, you know, I know who the three good fairies are, but I don't know which one is which. So Flora is kind of like the leader. She's the one in like a reddish pink color, like a, uh, I guess it's more red. She's in like a red color uh, and she kind of acts as like the de facto leader of the three of them. And then Fauna is in green and she is arguably the most, like she's the gentlest of the three, I would say. Uh, she's the most empathetic, I would argue. She's the kindest, I would argue. And then you have Meriwether, and she's the one in blue that's just kind of crabby all the time. Like, she's just in a rotten mood all the time. But uh, anyway, like I said, going back to the three good fairies, they suggest that they try reasoning with Maleficent. And that is Fauna who suggests that. Like I said, she is arguably the most empathetic of the three of them. But 
Flora and Meriwether just immediately dismiss that. They don't even want to hear that. They're like, you know, reason with Maleficent. You know, they just think that that is a completely outrageous idea. But it's like, why don't you just try? Like, what do you have to lose if you just try? There are some possible plot holes in this movie that I want to address, but to me, I don't necessarily see them as plot holes. I think that they're examples of reasons that I don't really like the three good fairies. I think that in a lot of ways they're hypocrites and they have like this sense of entitlement because they've been dubbed good. And what I mean by that is they say that they can't turn Maleficent into a fat old hop toad because their magic doesn't work that way. That quote, it can only do good to bring joy and happiness. But that clearly isn't true because they end up helping Philip kill Maleficent with their magic. So they can't turn her into a hop toad because that's like harming somebody. Even if it's somebody evil, it's still harmful, but they can kill her. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> uh, you know, and also like, I mean, the fairies can be very funny at times. In fact, there's a scene later in the movie, you know, I mentioned earlier how I don't agree that there's no humor in this movie. I think there's plenty. And a lot of it does come from the three good fairies. And so they can be very funny at times, but you know, I just, I have a love-hate relationship with them, and I feel like it's leaning much heavier toward hate. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, another example, though, of this is, like, Flora comes up with this idea to turn Aurora into a flower, because that way she can't fulfill the curse, because she won't have a finger to prick on a spindle of a spinning wheel, right? And again, it's like, okay, you can't turn Maleficent into a hop toad, but you can turn Aurora into a flower? I don't know, maybe it's like intent plays a role, because if you're turning Aurora into a flower, it's to protect her, and that's a good intent, whereas if you're turning Maleficent into a hop toad, you're punishing her, which is not good intent. Like, I don't know, maybe that's what it is, but it just seems like they're not being honest. But here's another example, though, of Fauna's, uh, you know, like I said, she kind of, of the three of them, has the most... She leans the most heavily into having empathy for others, I think. Meriwether says, like, well, what won't she expect? You know, they're trying to come up with a way to foil Maleficent's plans, like protect Aurora so that this curse doesn't take place. And they're trying to come up with a way to do that. And so they're spitballing ideas. And Meriwether says, well, what won't she expect? She knows everything. And Fauna replies, Oh, but she doesn't, dear. Maleficent doesn't know anything about love or kindness or the joy of helping others. You know, sometimes I don't think she's really very happy. Yeah, probably not, especially when she's the only person in the kingdom who wasn't invited to a ceremony. Like, yeah, she might not be very happy, but that could very well in large part be because the kingdom totally ostracizes her. And the novel that I mentioned a little while ago, uh, Mistress of All Evil by Serena Valentino, definitely does dive into that. It does give us that piece of the story because there are a lot of parallels between her book and Wicked, where Maleficent, like I said, I don't want to give too much away because I do definitely encourage you to read the book. But... Maleficent, because of her appearance, because she doesn't look like fairies normally look, and she has like a green tone to her skin, she's feared and ostracized. And so there are a lot of parallels between Mistress of All Evil and Wicked, which might have been intentional even, I don't know. But this causes Flora to come up with the idea to raise Aurora, and I always laugh in this scene because 
Fauna says, oh, well, that's very nice of them. Because, you know, Flora says, like, uh, she'll be raised by three peasant women, you know? And again, Fauna's like, oh, well, that's very nice of them. Because she's not grasping that <laughs> Flora's talking about them. Like, I don't really think that these fairies are all that bright. Uh, they're not very intelligent, I don't think. And it could be at least in some part because they aren't all that familiar with human customs. Like, that could be what it is. But speaking of them not understanding human customs, though, it really makes me wonder how fairies are born and raised in this universe. Because, you know, they're, like, enthusiastically talking about all the things that they will have to do. Uh, they'll have to feed Aurora. They'll have to clean her. They'll have to rock her to sleep. And Flora says, if humans can do it, so can we. So I'm thinking, do fairies not have young? Like, do they not have fairy babies? Do they not get raised? Like, I am kind of curious about that. <laughs> uh, but the narrator then tells us that everyone in the kingdom began rejoicing as it grew closer to Aurora's 16th birthday because, quote, as long as Maleficent's domain thundered with her wrath and frustration, her evil prophecy had not yet been fulfilled. But the curse was for it to happen on her 16th birthday, not by her 16th birthday. So why would it have been fulfilled yet anyway? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But uh, anyway, I digress. Uh, I do love the music associated with Maleficent. I mentioned in my Snow White episode that I loved the pieces of the score that were associated with the Evil Queen. And really, same deal here. Like, anytime Maleficent is on the screen, you know that you're in for a musical treat. And so when she arrives at the christening, for example, we get a track titled uh, Maleficent Appears. And that is really, really great. And then here we get a track titled Maleficent's Frustration. And this scene here is one of my favorite Maleficent scenes. It's really hard to tell you what my favorite is. It's probably, yeah, it is. It's the christening. It's her first time being seen on screen. But there are so many great, great scenes, though, that it's hard to, it's very difficult to, like, even say that one is my favorite. But because of how iconic it is and the way that her lines are delivered and just how animated in more ways than one <laughs> Eleanor oddly is like, you know, I have to give it to the christening, but this scene is one of the reasons why I love Maleficent so much. Uh, so she asks her goons if they've searched everywhere for Aurora and they say, yes, uh, yes, everywhere. We all did. Uh, we searched mountains and forests and houses and uh, let me see all the cradles. And Maleficent's reaction to this is priceless. <laughs> she says cradle cradle did you hear that my pet all these years they've been looking for a baby and then she then laughs hysterically like she can't she can't control herself like she just cannot stop laughing and then of course you know she unleashes her wrath and throws like some sort of energy like lightning thunderbolts or something like that at her goons with her staff and says fools idiots imbeciles which of course are you know like you're not a disney villain if you're not calling people fools like <laughs> so yeah just a really really great scene uh 
And of course, the good fairies have a bit where Flora and Meriwether argue about whether to make Aurora's dress pink or blue, and that's kind of one of the comedic bits of the movie is them bickering about what color to make the dress because, you know, they're planning for Aurora's 16th birthday party because it's almost time to bring her home. But speaking of Aurora, though, I will say that to me, at least, she is not a whole lot, but she's a little bit more interesting and complex than Snow White. Because, for example, she seems to be very perceptive. She immediately recognizes that the three fairies are mischievously planning something, that they're up to something. She, she's very good at reading emotions. You know, she knows. Uh, I mean, it's also likely that she overheard a little bit of what they were saying, but I also just get the sense that she's very empathic in a sense, like she's just good at picking up on emotions. Uh, you know, but... Meriwether insists, this is one of many, many reasons that I cannot stand Meriwether. She insists that they should use magic because the 16 years are, quote, almost up. And it's like, okay, but almost doesn't cut it. Like, in fact, if anything, it's even more important now not to use your magic than it was, say, 10 years ago. Because 10 years ago, she would have been six years old. The curse did not say by her 16th birthday. It said on her 16th birthday. So arguably, she didn't even need to be hidden or protected until that day. So almost doesn't cut it. It's almost time for the curse to take effect. It's now more important than ever that she be safe and hidden. So Meriwether, what an idiot. I'm sorry, but ugh, it just really, really aggravates me. And she then even later doubles down on it and says, I still think what I thunk before. I'm going to get those wands. Because, you know, of course, the whole reason why Meriwether is saying this is because they're trying to prepare this birthday party slash dinner for, or at least cake. I don't know if they were planning on making food, but, you know, well, cake is food, but you know what I mean. Uh, they're planning some sort of party for her. You know, they're they're trying to make her a dress. They're trying to make her a cake. And they're, like, royally failing at it. You know, they don't know how to do anything. And it makes for a lot of comedy. But Meriwether's getting frustrated because they don't know how to do these things, right? They, <laughs> And so she says, we need to use our magic to do these things. But it ultimately ends up being because of Meriwether that Diablo sees where Aurora is staying. And Maleficent is able to apprehend Philip there. Like, that's all Meriwether's fault. And, uh, but I do, like I said, I do find this scene really, really funny because like, for example, like I mentioned, Flora is trying to bake Aurora's birthday cake and she's very Amelia Bedelia in this scene <laughs> because the recipe calls for three cups of flour. So she just puts three actual cups of flour in, like she just fills three random cups of flour, like cup as in an actual physical cup, the object cup not the measurement cup. And then it calls for her to fold in gently two eggs. So she puts two whole eggs, shell and all, in the flour and then folds the flour over them and you hear them crack. <laughs> because she thinks that's what it means to fold the eggs. So very Amelia Bedelia energy. I love it. It's hilarious. Uh, and I also love this line here. Meriwether says of the dress that Flora is working on, it looks awful, to which Flora answers, that's because it's on you, dear. <laughs> Savage. 
<laughs> Definitely one of the best lines of the movie. I mean, like I said, I don't understand why this movie would have been criticized for not having humor. We then get Aurora out in the woods, you know, because the fairies have sent her out to pick berries because they want her out of the house while they plan. And she's singing, uh, I wonder, and then eventually once upon a dream. And this is of course sang beautifully by the amazingly talented Mary Costa. Uh, and this is the scene in which she meets Prince Philip. And the scenery here is absolutely stunning. Like I said, the backgrounds in this movie, the hand-painted backgrounds are just absolutely beautiful. And the art is one of the major reasons why I love this movie. And of course, like Snow White, Aurora attracts animals, especially with her voice. Uh, you know, so singing kind of draws animals out. And again, we see that in Snow White. And I mentioned earlier how Aurora is at least a little bit more developed as a character than Snow White is. And 1000% that is the case with Philip. Like Philip, we definitely get to know him as a person much better then we get to know the prince from Snow White. Uh, he has a lot more lines. He has uh, a much more uh, charismatic personality. Yeah, just definitely a much more interesting character than the prince from Snow White. The prince from Snow White is really nothing more than part of the plot. That's really all he is. He's not a character. He's basically like a part of the setting, if you will. Like, <laughs> yeah. But here, Philip is much more developed. I mean, I'm not saying he's like... Hercules or Quasimodo or, you know, a male protagonist from a later Disney movie, but compared to the prince from Snow White, he's a very interesting character. And I mentioned in my Snow White episode that the main way that I excuse Snow White and the prince barely knowing each other is that Serena Valentino's novel, Fairest of All, establishes that they already knew each other. Here, though, I think that it can easily be interpreted that Aurora and Philip literally did meet each other in dreams. This is a fantasy world, right? It's a fantasy movie. These things are possible, you know? In fact, uh, there's a novel that I highly, 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 highly recommend. It's so well-written. It's dark. Uh, it's called Once Upon a Dream by Liz Braswell. And it kind of is like a sequel to Sleeping Beauty while also kind of a retelling of it. Because most of it takes place after, well, okay, let me rephrase that. It takes place after most of the events from Sleeping Beauty. So basically, it kind of starts off where Philip goes to kiss Aurora. Now, it's been, I think, I want to I say like three years since I've read it. So I might be getting some of these details wrong. But to the best of my memory, it starts at approximately when Philip kisses Aurora. And then it imagines like, well, what if... Maleficent basically won. What if when Philip kissed Aurora, it put him in a sleep too? And Maleficent basically won, you know? So, and then the whole story moves from there. So, like I said, it's kind of sort of a sequel, but also not because it's a what if scenario. Anyway, highly recommend that. But, you know, that even establishes that when you're sleeping, you do enter a dream world and meet other people. So I think it's 100% possible that in this fantasy world, they have actually met each other in dreams before. But also, you know, another reason why I vastly, vastly prefer Aurora and Philip to Snow White and her prince is that there's this whole irony in this movie of them being betrothed to each other, yet meeting and falling in love anyway, not knowing who they are. So 
you know, I can, again, I can buy that in this fantasy world, they are meant to be together regardless. It's their destiny. You know, I think that there's something beautiful in that. And also, I think it's worth mentioning, I forgot to mention this, uh, you know, in order to help protect Aurora's identity, making it harder for Maleficent to find her, the three good fairies rename her Briar Rose, which is actually her name from the fairy tale. So that's kind of a cool little nod there, a little tie-in. Uh, but yeah, she doesn't feel comfortable telling Philip her name, so she runs away, and he says, when will I see you again? And she says, oh, never, never. She then soon rectifies that by saying, well, maybe someday. And Philip goes, when? Tomorrow? And Aurora says, oh, no, this evening. Like, okay, that de-escalated very, very quickly. Like, how did you go from never to this evening? <laughs> I guess you could make the case that it's because, like, as she's running away, she's thinking and she's realizing, well... I just need to talk to my aunts first. You know, I need to talk to the fairies. She doesn't know that they're fairies, but, you know, she refers to them as her aunts. Like, you know, I need to talk to them first. I need to see if they're okay with it. You know, I need to see if it's all right if I tell them my name. And, you know, that's probably what she's thinking. But still, it's like, yeah. I mean, you went from never to this evening very, very quickly. <laughs> uh, but she gets back to the cottage. She tells her aunts, the fairies, about him. But this is when they tell her that it's not possible for her to ever see him again because she's actually a princess, right? And she's got to go back to her real family soon, and she's already betrothed to someone. So she very dramatically runs away and cries, Oh, no, no, I can't believe it, no! And you do definitely feel for her, you know? Because she's basically being told that, Well, you're not who you thought you were. Your whole life has been a lie. But also, that doesn't seem to be the main reason that she's crying. The movie, at least to me, frames it that she's crying because this means that she's not going to be able to be with this boy that she just met in the, you know, in the, uh, the Glen. So it's like the point that I'm trying to make is that this is very, very, very on point with her age. Like she's behaving like a teenager here. And I think that that is another reason why I do find Aurora to be more interesting than Snow White is she is a little bit more developed and real and identifiable, like relatable, I guess is the better word. But, you know, we then it goes back to the castle and uh, where Hubert and Stefan are celebrating and eagerly awaiting uh, Aurora coming to the castle so that she and Philip can be married. And, you know, like I said, it stands to reason that 16 in this universe is considered an adult because they're not, in fact, this is kind of what the whole argument is about. Like Stefan, very reasonably, mind you, is trying to make the case that maybe don't rush this. She, she doesn't even know who she is. Like she's been being raised by these three women for her entire life and she doesn't even know that she's a princess and then she's going to come back and we're going to basically say like oh yeah uh not only are you a princess and you're royalty and briar rose isn't even your name your name is aurora but also you are betrothed to marry somebody tonight <laughs> you know like she doesn't even get a chance to breathe and 
I mean, I think that he's being very reasonable, Stefan, when he says, you know, maybe we don't rush this. Maybe we give her a little bit of time to acclimate. Like, this could come as a shock to her, which, of course, you know, Hubert interprets that as uh, him insulting Philip. Like, Philip is going to be a shock to her. Like, that's not what he meant. But they, they're, they're definitely intoxicated. In fact, they even kind of realize that that's why they're arguing. It's because they're intoxicated, because they're drinking. Uh and this song, the Scumps, Scumps, Scumps song, I mean, it's almost on par for me with the yodeling song from Snow White. It really just doesn't do anything at all to move the plot forward. It's completely unnecessary. But, you know, I kind of wish that we had gotten the chance to see how Stefan would have reacted to finding out that Philip didn't want to marry his daughter, even though that's actually exactly who he wanted to marry. He just didn't realize it. Uh, you know, we never find out how Stefan would react to that because before Hubert gets the chance to tell him, the three good fairies put everybody to sleep. But Hubert definitely does know, of course, because Philip confronts him and tells him. And I love this scene because Philip, as I've said, definitely has a lot more personality than the prince from Snow White. And this is a perfect scene exemplifying as to why that is. Like, he's snarky and assertive, and I just love it. And he has one of the best lines from the movie. He confronts his father, and he tells him that, you know, he has fallen in love, and he's going to marry this peasant girl instead of the princess. And, you know, this is the scene where we get his great, it's the 14th century line. <laughs> because, you know, he's trying to make the case that, like, this is an antiquated thing. Like, we don't need to be marrying out of convenience anymore. We don't need to be marrying for political reasons. Like, let's celebrate marrying for love, you know? And he is saying that this is a different time period now. People aren't doing this anymore, even though that's exactly what people were doing in the 14th century. So <laughs> it's a great line. I love that line so much. But he is just all around great in this scene. If they had done a Sleeping Beauty sequel similar to like Cinderella 3, A Twist in Time, which I love. I love, 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 love that movie. And one of the reasons I love it is because the prince from Cinderella, they really, really fleshed out his character and gave him a much more important role. And he has a personality, you know, and he's memorable. And I feel like if they had given us a Sleeping Beauty sequel in a similar fashion, Philip could have been a riot. Like, he could have just been so much fun. Uh, I mean, there is, like, a short sequel called Keys to the Kingdom, which is part of a, uh, like, a, uh, an anthology of short Disney princess movies. I think it's called Follow Your Dreams. And I have seen it, and it's not bad, but Philip is featured in it very, very minimally because basically he and uh, Stefan and I think Hubert they all, like, go off to some other, like, neighboring kingdom to settle an affair or something. I don't remember exactly what it is, but they leave Aurora anyway in charge of the castle. Hence the title of the short, Keys to the Kingdom, because she's being given the keys to the kingdom. And so she has to learn how to rule by herself. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting concept, but Philip, because he leaves... He's featured in it very, very minimally. So I'm just making the point that, like, if they did a feature-length animated movie, I just feel like Philip could really be a lot of fun in something like that. 
Another example, though, of the background art just being absolutely stellar is when the fairies bring Aurora back to the castle. It's so good. Oh, those bright colors. And, you know, one of the reasons why I love this movie is I just feel like those backgrounds paired with Tchaikovsky's ballet, you just feel like you're in this dream. You feel like you're having this wonderful, wonderful, colorful, fantastical dream. It's just wonderful. I mean, I just... I watch this movie, and every time I watch it, I think there really is nothing else like this. There really is no other movie like this. This is unique. It's literally one of a kind. I can't think of another movie that I could compare to this. Visually, I mean. Compare the art. Uh, because like I said, there are definitely on the surface a lot of similarities in plot to Snow White. But I mean, the art, the visuals, I, the animation, I can't think of another movie that compares. But what I don't understand is this is on her birthday, that they're bringing her back to the castle. Why would you do that? Like, I understand that, okay, there are no spinning wheels in the castle because Stefan has burned all of them. But still, where would Maleficent think to look for Aurora? At the castle, right? I mean, that's the most obvious place that she would be. That was the whole point of hiding her in a cottage for the last 16 years was so that Maleficent didn't know where she was. And now you're bringing her back somewhere where Maleficent can easily find her on the evening that the curse is supposed to take effect. This makes no sense. Why would you not wait until the day after her birthday to bring her back to the castle? After the time frame that has been put into place by the curse has passed. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. The first... Angelina Jolie Maleficent movie even makes fun of this. It even calls attention to that. I mean, it kind of sort of does end up working out because, you know, thanks to Flora and Meriwether, Maleficent knew about the cottage, but still, they didn't know that. And plus, like I said, that still led to Philip being apprehended. So, and then we get this iconic scene, yet another iconic scene uh, of Maleficent using magic to lure Aurora up the stairs, up to a spinning wheel that she's created out of magic. The music here is so good, so eerie. Uh, it's called Maleficent's Evil Spell. And this scene is just cinematic beauty at its finest. But Maleficent does successfully get Aurora to touch the spindle and fall into the, you know, the, the death-like sleep. Uh, and I love her dialogue here, once again absolutely phenomenal stellar work from Eleanor Audley. She says, you poor simple fools thinking you could defeat me, me, the mistress of all evil. Well, here's your precious princess. It's just so good. So good. Uh, you know, Flora, she decides that she's going to put the entire kingdom to sleep now. So she finds out Flora that the boy Aurora is in love with is actually the prince. And so they go back to the cottage to retrieve Philip, but Philip has been abducted by Maleficent. And at first I'm just like, because my first instinct is to think, why not just kill Philip, right? He's an obstacle. He's the loophole to your curse because of how the fairies softened it, right? So he's the loophole. Get rid of him. If he's dead, nobody can wake Aurora up. But she doesn't. She decides instead to abduct him and bring him to the castle. And... It's a little bit different to me than, you know, I complained a little bit in my Snow White episode about how, like, the evil queen kind of sets herself up for failure with this curse. 
why not just kill Snow White using this curse that has a loophole? Like you're setting yourself up for failure, <laughs> you know? Uh, but I don't think that this is quite the same thing when she abducts Philip as opposed to killing him because it's made clear not too long after that, that she has a very, very cruel plan. Like it's going to be much more painful to Philip than just killing him. She decides that she's going to put him in her dungeon and keep him there until he's an old, old man and then let him go. And you can understand, like I'll get in a bit to like the, uh, the poetic way that she explains this to him. But uh, yeah, that's her plan. And that is very cruel, right? And it's far more evil than just killing him. So at least there is like a logical reasoning for that. And she most likely also thinks that, well, as long as he's locked in my dungeon, he might as well be dead. There's no chance of him getting free from this. She even locks the door, you know, after she goes down to visit him and comes back upstairs, she locks the door. But I've also mentioned some of the similarities between Snow White and uh, Sleeping Beauty. And another one is that this whole plot of uh, Maleficent capturing Philip and, you know, bringing him to her castle and putting him in the dungeon so that he can't awaken uh, Aurora. That was a sequence, if you will, an event that was originally planned for Snow White, that the evil queen would abduct the prince and try to prevent him from awakening Snow White in that way. And they ended up not deciding to do that. And then it kind of was recycled here. And there's something else that's recycled from Snow White as well, which I'll get to in a bit when I get closer to the end of uh, the the film here. But uh, one thing that had me scratching my head, it kind of makes me wish that this movie had gone more in detail. I know that that wasn't the point. Like that was just not the point of the movie, but I do kind of wish that it went into more detail about how fairy politics work <laughs> because uh, when the three fairies realize that Philip has been abducted, uh, they realize that he's being held at the Forbidden Mountain and they say, but we can't go there. Like, why not? They they do. They do end up going there and don't seem to have like it's not like there's this uh, barrier, like this magic barrier around the Forbidden Mountain, around Maleficent's domain that won't allow anyone in. They have no problem getting there and going into the building and rescuing Philip. So why can't they go? Like, just because Maleficent has called it forbidden? Like, again, <laughs> it seems like there are these little, you know, pieces of inner fairy politics that the movie isn't letting us in on, and I kind of wish it were, but I'm probably the only person that wishes it were, so I digress. More yummy dialogue from Maleficent here. Just absolutely delicious. Uh, she goes down to the dungeon. And like I said, Maleficent, when she goes down to the dungeon to basically, in a very poetic way, explain to Philip why she's keeping him prisoner, the dialogue here is just so great. Eleanor Audley's acting, her voice acting, her voice work, phenomenal, as it is in every single scene that she's in in this movie. Uh, I love the dialogue here. Um, this is not only when we find out why Maleficent is keeping him prisoner, but Philip also finds out. But this is also where he finds out that the peasant girl that he's in love with is the princess, that they're one and the same person. And so Maleficent says, Oh, come now, Prince Philip. Why so melancholy? A wondrous future lies before you. 
you, the destined hero of a charming fairy tale come true. And what's interesting is that she uses her staff here, just like she did when she cursed Aurora near the beginning of the movie. So is what she's saying now a curse? Like, is she using magic to help further cement this happening? I don't know. But anyway, she uses her staff and she says, Behold, King Stefan's castle, and in yonder topmost tower, dreaming of her true love, the Princess Aurora. But see the gracious whim of fate. Why, tis the selfsame peasant maid who won the heart of our noble prince but yesterday. She is indeed most wondrous fair, gold of sunshine in her hair, lips that shame the red, red rose, in ageless sleep she finds repose. The years roll by, but a hundred years to a steadfast heart are but a day, and now the gates of the dungeon part and our prince is free to go his way. Off he rides on his noble steed, a valiant figure, straight and tall, to wake his love with love's first kiss, and prove that true love conquers all. <laughs> Once again, phenomenal voice work, and I'm doing my best to imitate it. I'm failing miserably because you can't. You just can't. It's that good. But I'm doing my best, and I just love, like, the kind of, I don't know, it almost kind of reminds me of Ursula when she says, you know, love's first kiss. You know, like, she says it in kind of this uh, sarcastic, playful way where she's mocking him. You know, and you can definitely see where the writer of the Angelina Jolie Maleficent movie used that as ammunition, like used that as, yeah, she's mocking true love in that scene, which means it's probably something that she doesn't believe in. And why wouldn't she believe in true love? Well, maybe her heart was broken, right? So you can kind of see where they went from that. Like that might have been an inspiration for that part of her character. But the three good fairies very shortly after that free Philip. And here's another example of what I was talking about before about their lying. Because <laughs> Flora says, The road to true love may be barred by still many more dangers which you alone will have to face. But he doesn't face them alone. None of them. If it weren't for the fairies, he'd be dead. They transform boulders that are about to crush him into bubbles. They transform arrows that are headed his way into, like, flowers. Like... If it weren't for them, he'd be dead. And then it's only because of them that he's able to kill Maleficent. They use magic to make sure that his sword hits Maleficent when he throws it. And by the way, the sword and the shield that he has, he has because they used magic to give them to him. So you alone will have to face this. But JK, not really. We're going to kill Maleficent. Like, <laughs> And like I said, they couldn't turn her into a toad, but they can killer doesn't make any sense at all but uh meriwether also turns diablo into stone once again i thought that they couldn't use magic that would harm people or things uh but this makes maleficent very very upset like when she realizes that diablo has been turned into stone you see like she says no no and she looks pained like you see grief on her face and so Clearly, she does at least know a little bit something about love. She was very clearly attached to Diablo. And then the showdown between Maleficent and Philip, or really, I should say, Maleficent 
and Philip slash the fairies, mostly the fairies, uh, <laughs> is really, really great. You know, I love how Maleficent casts the spell to surround Stefan's castle with thorns. Uh, and the spell takes effect and it casts lightning to the rhythm of the music that's playing. It's so cool. So good. It's just so much fun. Uh, and we do get, this is, it's really, really hard for me to pin my favorite line, my favorite dialogue from this movie. There's so much gold that it's just so hard for me to say, what is my favorite line from this movie? But this might be my favorite. If not, it's way, 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 way up there. Um, Maleficent finally decides, you know what? I'm done playing around. I'm just going to destroy him, right? And so she transforms into a dragon. But right before she does, she says, Now shall you deal with me, O prince, and all the powers of hell. And this is unfortunately her last line, though. <laughs> uh, and in fact, when she's killed... This is the other connection to Snow White. Uh, you know, Philip throws his sword at her. It hits her. And her scream is the exact same scream from Snow White when uh, the evil queen in the hag form falls from the cliff and dies. So they recycled that scream. And then, of course, we get our happy ending. You know, everything is all good and dandy. In fact, Fauna even cries and says, I do love a happy ending. And Aurora and Philip are dancing to Once Upon a Dream. And of course, Aurora's dress keeps changing from pink to blue because Flora and Meriwether are still arguing and fighting over that. So they keep using magic to change the color. I am kind of curious what your preference is. Like, are you team pink or team blue? Me personally, I'm team pink. I think that she just looks better in pink, but uh, that's me. Uh, <laughs> kind of curious what your view on that is. Uh, but what's interesting here is that the waltz itself, like the dance itself, Aurora and Philip dancing, is recycled in the animated Beauty and the Beast when Belle and the Beast dance in the ballroom. It's a process called rotoscoping. And what rotoscoping is, is you're tracing over footage frame by frame to create animation. And that's how the ballroom scene from Beauty and the Beast was done, is they recycled the dancing from Sleeping Beauty and put it here, put it in Beauty and the Beast. So that's kind of cool. Uh, you know, I think it works really well. And, uh, you know, I do like, I also love, you know, because like I said, they're Flora and uh, Meriwether are fighting again about the dress color. But that starts because Flora just now suddenly realizes that the dress is blue. The dress has been blue the entire time. And she's just now realizing it, you know? And uh, so we get that kind of uh, funny closing of the dress, like I said, repeatedly going back and forth between blue and pink because they're fighting over it. But that's the movie. That's Sleeping Beauty. And uh, like I said, I absolutely adore this movie. I love this movie. I mean, sure... Aurora's motivations are a bit simplistic like Snow White's were, but I do think that she's more realistic. Uh, she's a more realistic depiction of someone her age, I think. And Maleficent just steals this movie, completely steals this movie. I mean, it's her movie <laughs> to me, you know, like she's just by far the most compelling, most charismatic uh, character in this movie. 
I just love her so much. And like I said, the art is absolutely stunning. Uh, setting it to Tchaikovsky's ballet, I think, was a smart choice. Uh, this is my favorite Disney animated movie of all time. There is, of course, the somewhat problematic aspect of Philip breaking the curse by kissing Aurora while she is asleep. And that has, in recent years, come under some heavy fire for depicting a non-consensual kiss. But at the same time, it's like, well, what choice did he have? I mean, in the rules that have been created by this movie, well, not by this movie, because this is a fairy tale trope, right? I mean, pretty much the same thing happens in Snow White. But the rules that have been created in this universe basically mean that he has the choice between kissing her while she is asleep or her basically being dead, right? Her being in this death-like sleep for eternity. I mean, I'm not defending non-consensual kisses. Please don't misinterpret me. I'm just saying that in the universe of this movie, I don't think that the same rules necessarily apply. And also, like I said, I think that it's a little bit more understandable and excusable if they did, in fact, kind of know each other before. Like, if they had met several times in the dream world, I feel like it makes it a little bit more excusable because I think that one of the biggest problems that people have with him kissing her is that he doesn't know her that well. He barely knows her. He's only known her for like a day. So you can't just kiss someone without asking them if it's okay. Like, I get that that's problematic, but I feel like it's a little bit better. It softens it a little bit if we allow ourselves to believe that they did, in fact, know each other for a while before physically meeting. So, yeah. But anyway, like I said, favorite Disney animated movie of all time. I've got to give it 10 out of 10. This movie gets a full 10 out of 10 from me. Uh, so if you would like to reach out to me, uh, you can do that by emailing disneyshpodcast at gmail.com. You can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash podcast. You can follow podcast on Instagram. And you can also follow my personal page on Instagram, which is The Lost Passenger. So, uh, you know, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, like, uh, you know, share your thoughts, share your favorite moments from this movie. I would absolutely love that. So, uh, you know, please do reach out to me. I also strongly encourage you to subscribe. If you're enjoying this, if you're liking what you're hearing, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to it, because that way when a new episode comes out, you'll be notified. You'll know when a new episode drops. And next up, I kind of have to share the other side of the story now, right? So next up on the podcast is the first Angelina Jolie Maleficent movie from 2014. So be on the lookout for that to drop. And until next time, this has been Disney reminding you that true love conquers all. Disney.